0: And you're going to be set aside and set apart from the culture and the society. We know that there is still hope because we know what the future will bring, and that will bring the end of history. So turn with me, if you will, to Revelation 21. We're going to go through, in the bulletin it's, it says all the way through chapter 21 today, but you know, 21, the, the third vision ends at 21.8, and then we get into a totally new vision, uh, the fourth vision. And so today we're actually going to just march through 21.8, and then next week, prepare yourself, because it's going to be a mad dash through the fourth vision. So that's, that's the way we're going to lay this out. And then the following week, May 29th, we will do a review. So if you've missed it all, uh, come May 29th and you'll get little bits here and there. All right. So Revelation 21, one through eight. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So that is how the third vision ends This, then I saw, this is the same vision, he's emphasizing this is the same vision, but it's kind of a new scene. So he's still caught up in the same vision, but he's seeing a new scene in the same vision. This is the end, and it's going to propel us into the fourth. It's introducing us into the fourth vision. So the third vision is kind of this odd vision, because it actually dives us deeper into the last part of the second vision, and then it transitions into this Chapter 20, uh, which is just this little snippet about a thousand-year reign. That seems like there could be more description, but we only get a little bit of it. And then he gives us an introduction into the fourth. So since this is the end of the third, I figured we'd review the third a little bit. So the third vision starts in chapter 17, and he gives us the description of the great prostitute and the beast. We learned that in chapter 17 that the prostitute was also a name for Babylon the Great. There are two different ideas or descriptions that we get from both the Great Prostitute and Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great was a way of describing a world's system that used and abused others economically. It was a world system based in legalism, where if you weren't useful, you were cast to the side. That's Babylon the Great. It is a world system in rebellion against God. The great prostitute is also a world system, and it's a world system based on idolatry. They're one in the same, but there's two different descriptions going on there. So one is we use and abuse people. The other one is we are in rebellion against God, and we worship anything but God. We will worship whatever it is as long as it's not God. So if you can remember all the way back into the second vision, when hell was released on earth, and demonic forces came and they were torturing people and the pain was so bad that they were crying out that they would die and God wouldn't allow them to die. Their, their wanting to kill themselves was a way, one last way of trying to establish their authority of God, over God. It was one last step in rebellion against God, but God wouldn't allow it. But that's how bad the pain was, is that they were trying to die. And those very demonic forces that were that were torturing them, they decide to worship instead of God. Think about that for a second, and think about that amount of idolatry. They would rather worship the forces that are torturing them than the force that was willing to give them peace from the pain. That shows the idolatry. So, throughout the Old Testament prostitution was synonymous with idolatry. And even at this time, the original audience would have seen it as that because there were the temple prostitutes. So that was part of idolatry, was going to the temple and partaking in temple prostitution. And so when he describes Babylon the Great as this great prostitute, he is describing this great amount of idolatry, worshipping anything but God. So we see this description and then, chapter 18, he gives us a funeral, three funeral songs for the great prostitute in Babylon the Great. And these funeral songs, though the, the, the seafarer and the merchant and the kings are singing these funeral songs, they don't actually grieve over the death of the prostitute, they don't grieve over the death of Babylon the Great, they grieve the fact that they're no longer going to benefit. They were a part of the system, they were willing to use and abuse other people, and now they're grieving because that system has ended. But that's the world system. That's the system of Babylon the Great, is to use and abuse others for your own comfort. I think as a church, we need to think about that for a second. Too often, churches look like the world's system. Too often, churches are willing to use and abuse people so that they might puff themselves up. And it's not okay. The church has been called to live in a system of grace. We need to reject The Babylon the Great's system. A system of using others for our own gain. But instead, as Paul writes in Philippians, to put others' needs first. To put others' needs above our own. That should be what we do in the church. So, that's Babylon the Great. That's That's the funeral songs over Babylon the Great. And then in chapter 19, there's a contrast with songs of celebration. So, the, those who partake in battle on the great will mourn because they've lost their system, but those who have put their faith and trust in Christ will celebrate, and they will celebrate because God's true just judgments are coming, and that's something worthy of celebrating. And then we see that the that there is going to be a marriage supper of Christ and his bride, the church. Now, we examined the three-step process for a Jewish wedding. The first step was a betrothal. It was a legal marriage at the betrothal. When we talk about engagement, we talk about someone who's not quite legally married. They have committed to become legally married, but they're not legally married. And so if one person decides that they want to back out, they don't have to go through the legal process yet. They can leave. That wasn't the way it was in Jewish custom. In Jewish custom, when you were betrothed, you were legally married. This is why in the Gospels, when Joseph finds out about that Mary's pregnant, he decides that he will divorce her quietly. They were only betrothed. They hadn't consummated the relationship yet, but in that time period, to be betrothed, and to be legally married. So that's the first step. The next step was, oh, and part of that step is the man would then go back to his house and he would prepare a place. He would prepare the house for their new family. While he was doing that, the bride would also prepare to be a good wife. So both the husband and the wife are preparing. This brings, uh, or this brings some understanding when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. We are the bride of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ right now. God Jesus is preparing a place for us. That's he's describing that betrothal process. Conversely, if he's going to prepare a place, we need to be preparing ourselves for him as well, right? So then the second part of the process is when the time was right, the husband would go to the wife's house and they would throw a party processional from his house or from her house back To his house and it would be a big party. In fact, it was considered rude if you stumbled upon this party as a stranger and you didn't join in. So then the third step was, and they got to the house, there would be a feast. And this feast would last days. So, we saw in chapter 19 this marriage feast occurring. Now some theologians think that that thousand-year reign is part of that marriage feast. I don't know. I don't know if I'm entirely sold on it, but it's interesting to think about. So then after the marriage feast, we see a rider on a white horse, and we learned that a king would ride a horse during a time of war. During a time of peace, a king would ride a donkey. During the triumphal entry, Jesus rides a donkey, signifying peace between man and God, that he's there to bring peace between man and God. Now he's riding a horse. And he meets up with these armies at a place called Megiddo, the plains of Megiddo, which is what we call Armageddon today. And this is where we see that he's he's describing the last part of chapter 16, the very last bowl of judgment in the second vision, because it's Armageddon. It's not two different battles, it's the same battle. And Jesus is victorious. In fact, he's so victorious, all he has to do is speak. And the battle's over. After the battle's over, we pick up in chapter 20, and that's when an angel locks Satan down for a thousand years, and Jesus reigns for a thousand years, and after he reigns for a thousand years, they let Satan loose, and instantly he gains an army to battle against God, and this is to reveal man's depravity, man's wickedness. They lived in a perfect system. They had the ability to live in the perfect government. Now I like our government, but it's not perfect. In fact, any historian can look at any government and say no government has been perfect. They will get the opportunity to live in a perfect government, and yet, at the end of it all, there will be multitudes In rebellion against God. And it reveals that it's not Satan's fault. That whole saying, Satan made me do it? Nah. Satan gave you the opportunity to reveal the wickedness in your own heart. Satan doesn't make you do anything. But he gives you an opportunity for the wickedness to come out. And that's what happens here. Satan doesn't make him do it but he gives them an opportunity to rebel. Great multitudes take that opportunity, and they go to war against God. And once again, they are defeated in a heartbeat. So there's two wars at the end of time. There's the Armageddon War, then there's the Great White Throne, or then there's the uh, Thousand-Year Reign, and then there is the Second War, that is over in a heartbeat and it is with the the end of that war that Satan is thrown and permanently locked forever in hell. And then we got to the great white throne judgment and this is Jesus rewarding believers and judging non-believers based upon their action. And that is where we usher in the end of history. Because from then on, God will take the reins. God will be in control. And unlike what happened in 1992, where we thought we'd never see war again because Western democracy would roll out, God's theocratic reign will be eternal and there will be no more war. So, after he sees this great white throne judgment, then a new heaven and new earth for the first and uh, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. So we read last week that, the, that the, uh, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. So at the coming of God and his holiness and his righteousness, the earth quite literally just dissolves. Now why does the earth dissolve? Because man brought, when Adam sinned, he brought corruption into this world. That is why we have death. That is why we have diseases. If you've ever wondered why there might be a pandemic, it's because there was a corruptness that came into the world and it infiltrated all of the world, not just our hearts, though that's where it starts from, but then it infiltrates all other parts of the world. So, all of the world is considered, at this point, corrupted. Now, some people would take that and they say, since there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, We don't have to be good stewards of this one. We might as well just go ahead and pollute everything and destroy the earth. Uh, That would be a good idea, except God has given us a charge to be good stewards of the earth. So he has given us the earth to be stewards over. It's kind of like, you know, your kid, uh, if you were going to move out of your house, if you were going to move to Alaska here soon, and your kid was like, well, we're moving So I don't have to take care of my room. So I'm just going to absolutely trash my room. And you're like, but as a parent, I have given you to be a steward over that room, and you better not trash your room. That's how it's going to be. So God has given us stewardship. We better not trash the room. We want to take good care of the room, just like parents want their kids to take good care of their rooms. All right? So... There, but, but when he comes, the earth and the heavens will dissolve. Now, something that we don't often think about is although the earth will dissolve, heavens here is, there's kind of two references that we see to heaven. Uh, it's either the heavens, meaning space, or heavens, meaning God's dwelling place. I think here it is literally space. So when they're talking about heaven here, they're not talking about, or John's not talking about God's dwelling place. He's specifically mentioning space. So think about that for a second. It's not just going to be Earth that's going to dissolve, but Pluto. We don't need to argue about whether or not Pluto is a planet. Pluto will dissolve as well. All heaven and all Earth will dissolve. It will dissolve before the presence of a righteous and holy God because he is so holy that nothing that is corrupt can come before his presence. But we will get a new heaven and a new earth. And the sea was no more. The sea, this is this. at first seems a little weird, like we're never going to have an ocean. My cousin who lives in Hawaii would weep over this. But I think here the sea is symbolic. Throughout the book of Revelation, sea has been symbolic. So, uh... It's been symbolic for evil. So the sea gave up the dead. We saw that that was symbolic for evil. That beasts, the beast arises out of the sea. That the dragon arises out of the sea. And so we see that the sea throughout this book has been symbolic for evil. And what he's getting at is that evil will be no more. There will no longer be evil in the new heaven and new earth. We won't have to struggle with the wickedness anymore. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So uh, the bride adorned for her her husband, Uh, some people think that because there's bride language here, that this means that the New Jerusalem is going to be the church. I don't necessarily think it's that. Uh, sometimes we can get a little carried away with bride talk. We've already seen that the bride has uh, had the wedding banquet. Here, this is just a description for how beautiful the new Jerusalem is going to be. So, uh, have you ever, in your life, seen an ugly bride? I can't say that I have. Now, I I might have seen a woman that I didn't think was particularly good-looking, the day before her wedding, or the day after her wedding, but on the day of her wedding, every bride is beautiful. There's just a special glow about her that makes her the most beautiful woman on that day. No matter how hard you try to show up that bride, you can't, it's not your wedding. You won't be more beautiful than the bride. And I think that's what he's getting at here, is that the bride is adorned, it is going to be beautiful. So I don't think that this is representing uh, the church. I think this is representing the beauty of the new city that God has created. This, the beauty of the uncorrupted city. This new Jerusalem will not have any corruption in it. So it will be a beautiful city. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, now this behold means pay special attention. So we might want to pay special attention here, huh? I mean, we should be paying attention the whole time. But in this part in particular, behold, pay special attention. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So pay special attention. This new Jerusalem that's coming down, this is going to be the dwelling place of God. Dwelling, uh, to dwell in the Greek is skene. And it means to have a tent or literally to tabernacle with, to live with. And it's related to the Shekinah glory of God. If you remember, the Shekinah glory first occurs in the Exodus. So after Israel has fled from Egypt and they're in the wilderness, God directs them with a cloud during the day and at night the glow of a burning flame. And it is his presence that is with them. And then they go into the promised land, and they conquer the promised land, and eventually they build the temple, and his presence fills the temple with its glory. His Shekinah glory is with them. The story of Israel is a story of redemption, because his Shekinah glory is with them, and yet, throughout their history, they rebel, and they're faithless, and they fall into idolatry over and over again. Until the moment where God raises up Babylon, he says, I've had enough, I'm going to raise up Babylon, and I'm going to discipline you. But even before that, think about having the Shekinah glory in a temple, giving you encouragement, giving you hope, even so much so that when the great Assyrian army comes down, they wipe out the northern kingdom, and they lay siege to Jerusalem. And yet Hezekiah can say, I trust in God. Well, he's got the Shekinah glory in the temple. And yet how many still remained faithless? And so the great Assyrian army, I love the way the Old Testament puts it, they wake up dead. What I mean is that some of them woke up, the majority of them were dead. Well, they had the Shekinah glory in the temple, encouraging them, moving them forward, and yet... Still wicked king after wicked king came. And so God raises up Babylon, and right before Babylon attacks, the Shekinah glory leaves the temple. Could you imagine being a Jew when the Shekinah glory leaves the temple? All of your life, you've been able to trust that the Shekinah glory was there. You've heard the stories about how God's glory defeated army after army, and now this great army is laying siege and the Shekinah glory is gone. Well, we have hope, because that glory will return. And even more so than that glory, we will dwell with God. He will come and dwell with us. There are times that every person feels like God is far off. Every single person struggles at times with saying, God, where are you? We won't have that struggle anymore. God will dwell with us. And he continues, He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Now the first use of Uh, They will be his, he will dwell with them and they will be his people is used in Exodus 29. And then it becomes a major theme throughout the Bible that God is going to create a people for himself. What's interesting is this is the first time that people is plural. Throughout the Bible it's a singular and it's a reference strictly to Israel. But here it's a plural and it's showing that it's not just Israel but all of mankind. Everyone that is now on earth, in the new earth, all believers from all time periods, everywhere, get to enjoy being God's people. All those cultural divisions that divide us will be gone. We will be God's people. And he will be ours. All those distinctions that we have to try to separate us will be no more. Because we will be God's people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then he's going to do four things for us. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. It doesn't matter what kind of life you have lived. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what part of the political aisle you are on. You have been affected by death. And if you have not yet been affected by death, you will be. Death came in with Adam's sin. It came in with the corruption of humanity. And it has plagued us ever since. But there is hope. If you are struggling... In grief right now, without God, there is no hope. If you are are an atheist or if you are holding on to this idea that there is no God, then where's the hope? When someone that you love dies, where is the hope? But with God, there is still hope. In the spring of 2011... My brother's wife had a stillborn. We went to visit. My brother's a big guy. He's a power lifter. Big dude. I've looked up to him my whole life. And he held his baby daughter. and He bawled. Because this this baby that he just couldn't wait to meet, died. The only thing that gave him comfort was that he will see her again one day. And so he named her Hope, Glory, Comfort, because they know in Christ there is hope. I think about King David, when his son dies. And then he can say, I will see her again one day. Revelation gives us hope, because we know this is not the end. This life that we are living is not the end of it all, and there is more yet to come. And that helps us to continue on, even in the midst of pain. But we know that there's more to come and that God Himself will wipe away every tear. That there will be no more mourning. That we won't have to mourn for those that we have lost. There will be no more crying. There will be no more heartache. For the former things have passed away. All the death, and disease, and pain, and heartache that we experience in this life, this is because of Babylon the Great's system that is in rebellion against God, and it had ushered in corruption. And we experience those things now because of the corrupt systems of the world. But when God comes to rule, when we see the end of history, those corrupt things will have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Due to the corruption, all things were corrupt. Therefore, he makes all things new. At the end of history, all things will be made new. They will be made fresh. And it starts actually with you. What's interesting is, throughout this throughout this vision, the third vision, he's been talking in future tense. There, we've been looking towards the future. And what's interesting is here he says, Behold, I am making all things new. It's no longer a future tense. It's a present tense. He is doing it now. And he is doing it starting with us. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, when you come to the end of yourself, when you say, God, I'm sick of rebelling against you, trying to do my things my own way, And I realize because I have sinned against you, because I have rebelled against you, because I have tried to do things on my own, I deserve death. But you being such a great God with such great love for me have provided a way that I can live eternally with you. And when you put your faith and trust in Christ and say, God, I trust the work on the cross that you paid the penalty for my rebellion, then he immediately begins to make you knew. You are a new creation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, Behold, you are a new creation. The things that have passed away are gone. He has made you new. You are a new creation. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And so he's emphasizing the truth. And he said to me, it is done. This is the third time we read it is done in the New Testament. Jesus said it on the cross when he paid the price for his sins. God says it at the end of the bowls of wrath when he has poured out his judgment and his judgment and wrath are finished and we see it here again. This is the end of history. It is done. The corrupt nature that we have had to live in is done. God has made all things new. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Here he's emphasizing his uh, sovereignty and authority. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And here he's being evangelistic. Essentially, he's saying to those who love life, to those who want to live, cry out to me, cry out to God recognize the corruptness of the world right now, that the world is in decay, and yet God offers life, cry out to Him, and when you do, He will give you life without payment. It's not something you can earn. There is no way you can earn salvation. You can't work for it. It is simply a gift from God that you can accept by putting your faith and trust in Him. To the one who conquers, I will have... Sorry... The one who conquers will have this heritage. Conquer here uh, is all those who are found in Christ. You and I cannot conquer on our own merit. You can't conquer on your own. The only way to be one who has conquered is to be found in Christ. You are found in Christ when you put your faith and trust in him. Then he covers you with his victory. You can be victorious Because he was victorious. You can be victorious because he is victorious. So those are the ones who conquer, are the ones who have put their faith and trust in Christ. And what will we receive? I will be his God and he will be my son. So he's been talking about being his people, that he will govern us, that he will rule us. But then it gets even more intimate than that it becomes so much closer than that, that we actually get to have this personal relationship with God. He's not going to be like the president. I don't know if you have ever met a president. I have not. I've never even met a mayor or a governor. All these people that have authority over us, I don't have a personal relationship with, but I get to have a personal relationship with the Creator. That it's not just I will be governed by Him, but I will be His son, He'll know me and I will know him. And then he contrasts that with, but as for the cowardly and the faithless. The cowardly and the faithless are the cultural Christians. What I mean by that is these are the people that call themselves Christians, but have never actually put their faith and trust in Christ. I always think about a friend that I had in high school whose mom was a Christian and his dad was an atheist. And so he said, I think I'm half atheist, half Christian. I I don't think that's how that works, buddy. If you're an atheist, you don't believe in God. If you don't believe in God, you're not a Christian at all. And we have so many people that are cultural Christians that have never actually put their faith and trust in Christ. But say, I'm a Christian because their parents are. Do you call yourself a Christian? If you call yourself a Christian, why do you call yourself a Christian? Is it because you go to church? Going to church won't make you a Christian. Is it because you've been baptized? Being baptized won't make you a Christian. Is it because you do good works? Is it because you read the Bible? Those things don't make you a Christian. The only thing that can make you a Christian is by putting your faith and trust in Christ. By saying, God, I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. And yet you paid the price for me. That's what makes you a Christian. So the cowardly and the faithful, faithless are those cultural Christians who call themselves a Christian who have never actually put their faith in Christ. The detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And here's the rub, is that describes all of us. You may not be a murderer, you may not have taken someone's life, but something on this list you have done... Even if it's just a lie. Have you ever told a little white lie? Boom, you're on this list. Have you ever lusted after someone? Boom, you're on this list. Have you ever put something over God in your life? Boom, you are on this list. Every single one of us are on this list unless you're found in Christ. The only way to not be on this list is to confess that you're on the list and to realize that Christ paid the price for you anyway. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul gives a similar list 1 Corinthians 6, starting in 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And just like the list in Revelation, you and I are somewhere on this list. And we will not inherit the kingdom of God, except for he goes on. He doesn't end the list there. He says, And such were some of you, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Are you on that list? Have you committed those things? Have you put your faith and trust in Christ? If you have put your faith and trust in Christ, then you are a conqueror. You have been made pure, righteous and holy. You don't have to beat yourself up anymore. You don't have to like make payments for your guilt. You don't have to feel shame. God has called you holy and just and righteous because he has made you those things. But if you haven't put your faith and trust in Christ yet. Then there is a portion of the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur waiting for you. So there's two groups. There's the conquerors and there's the cowards. Those who have conquered are victorious because He is victorious and we get to partake in His victory. So what are you? Are you a conqueror? Or are you a coward? Dear Lord, We thank you for the hope that we get to have in you. We thank you that this isn't the end, that we know that there is more to this life and and that in the end of history, when you come and you rule for eternity, there will be no more pain, there will be no more mourning, there will be no more grief, there will be no more death. And we pray for those who have not put their faith and trust in you yet. Help us to not see them as enemies, but to see them as people that need the gospel. And help us as a church to strive to preach the gospel to those who are still destined for hell. In your name we pray, amen.